This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ballots for the midterm election start hitting the mail in just three weeks, and Coloradans will choose their next governor. Today, our in-depth interview with the Democrat in the race, Jared Polis, currently a congressman from Boulder. We recorded the conversation Friday, and you'll notice from time to time we stop tape and add some perspective when Polis makes a claim about his opponent, Republican Walker Stapleton. Stapleton's interview is scheduled to air next Monday. So to Jared Polis. On this year's ballot, there are some hefty tax and spending measures for schools and roads statewide, and I wanted to know where he stands on them. Let's start with the two transportation questions. One would raise the state sales tax and includes transit. Another would focus on roads and relies on bonding, essentially borrowing, to pay for that. First of all, we have to be able to make the investments we need to build out a 21st century infrastructure with a growing state. We have to look at the cost of doing nothing. And I think the average Coloradan spends about $600 a year being stuck in traffic and additional wear and tear and lost productivity. There are two measures. One is very harmful. Uh, the other is a way of doing things that um, is not necessarily one that you know I would write if I was writing it. The, the dangerous one would be bonding without new revenue. It would put the state in debt without any additional revenue to pay for it and crowd out everything we want to accomplish in schools. Uh, the cost of college would go up. Uh, Health care rates would likely go up and it would drain our classrooms of money. So if you're going to bond, it's important that you have what's called the dedicated revenue source. You oppose fix our damn roads is the bonding proposal. Uh, their words, not mine. And are you taking a position? Will you take one with me on the tax increase? Yeah, it's not it's not what I would do. I think that particular vehicle is a is a sales tax increase. It's not something that I personally support. You will not vote for it. I haven't personally supported it or endorsed it. I'm open to a wide variety of ways of paying for infrastructure. If it gets done, uh, then we will uh, enact it as efficiently as possible. If it fails, uh, then we'll work with Republicans and Democrats in the business community on on better finance mechanisms. There is also on the ballot uh, a tax increase for schools using a different mechanism, not the sales tax. What do you think of it? Well, that one is actually a constitutional amendment. And in many ways, our constitution is already already extremely cluttered with fiscal provisions. There's Amendment 23, there's the Gallagher Amendment, there's Tabor. I've long been on the side of trying to simplify and get many of these fiscal provisions uh, out of our state constitution so that our state can be more governable, regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. It really ties the hands of our legislature and the governor. That is to say, it sounds like you would vote against that as well. If it passes, uh, we will use that money as efficiently as possible. If it doesn't, uh, we will approach things in a way to try to simplify uh, our state constitution and and decades of underinvestment in our public schools. And of course, fulfill uh, my goal of making sure that every child has access to preschool and kindergarten across the state, which would save uh, young families so much money on daycare. So not a, not a ringing endorsement, but not an outright. Well, you know, you're you're this. asking about ballot initiatives. Um, my focus is on what I can do a, as governor. Our focus is preschool and kindergarten. We have uh, finance mechanisms like social impact bonds, uh, like the Pay for Success program in Westminster that all has already achieved universal kindergarten and at least half day preschool for all their kids for free. We can fund it out of future savings to the system. Uh, certainly, we'll have to see what the voters do in terms of setting the tone for the next administration. 
But as a candidate for governor, I'm really focused on what we could accomplish working with the state legislature and with the executive uh, authority of the governor. If the education measure doesn't succeed, statewide tax increases have not fared well in recent Colorado history. What do you suggest as revenue streams? Why don't we start with education and then move to transportation? So a very big difference between uh, Walker Stapleton and myself on funding education. Uh, His marquee proposals would actually take money out of our public schools. One of them is creating private savings accounts to pay for tutors or piano on the side. Uh, Again, that would forego revenue that would otherwise go to our schools. The other would be a sales tax holiday for uh, notebooks and school supplies also taking money out of our schools. Okay, let's pause here for a second. It's true the Republican candidate wants a sales tax holiday for school supplies, which indirectly could reduce tax revenues, but not expressly take money out of public schools. And Polis's opponent does want tax-free education savings accounts. That could reduce some revenue for government, but once again, not expressly for schools. Okay, here's Polis on his own education vision. We are interested in investing in our schools, reducing class size, paying teacher better. Uh, This will be a priority for general fund expenditures, which in what we hope the current projections show, a flush budget year, uh, we would make uh, certainly our number one priority, not just investing in our schools, but I'm not afraid to make sure that those resources reach the classroom, meaning, of course, it's up to districts at the end of the day, but we can certainly make sure that they reach the classroom in the form of smaller class size, better teacher pay, and don't go to administrative inefficiencies along the way. What has to be sacrificed in order to say this general fund revenue is going toward schools? Well, that's certainly our priority. Again, I think it's all a matter of priorities. I think that we as a society over-incarcerate. We need to do a better job dealing with issues like opioid abuse and drug abuse through the healthcare system where it's less expensive and more effective. uh, And we can uh, represent some of those savings by investing in our schools. I'd like to talk about growth. CPR reporters have been all around the state for the last couple of months talking to people about what's on their minds. Growth certainly is on their brains these days. One of the folks we ran into is Rusha Lev of Golden. We have thousands of people coming into this state and we don't have resources for them. And that shouldn't happen in a state where we have like the lowest, you know, joblessness rate. You hear Lev's three boys in the background. Is Colorado growing too fast? So the real challenge is, is that we have to make growth work for those of us who are already here. It's great to have a growing economy. All our economic agenda will lead to more growth in Colorado. Uh, but we also need to make sure that growth actually improves our quality of life, meaning how can we make sure that we build the necessary infrastructure so traffic doesn't get worse? How do we protect our public lands, our parks, our open space? Uh, my focus will be how can we help families save more money at the end of every month, save money on childcare, save money on health care, uh, save uh, lost productivity and traffic, and really not just get by in a growing state, but thrive. So give me an example of how you take the growth that's coming and you make it, as you say, make it work for us. As we look towards building more affordable housing opportunities close to where people work, we need to do the right kind of transit planning and offer different ways of commuting and getting to the places you love. The way I view transportation is lane expansion has a very important role, and I've worked to deliver that in the northern 25 corridor and Highway 36. But we also have to look at uh, light rail expansion, 
bike transit, uh, transit plan communities uh, so people can live uh, on transit lines closer and get, have a way of getting to where the jobs are. Communities are strongest when people that working communities can also afford to live in the community that they work in. And that's becoming harder and harder in many parts of our state. On the question of growth, I think a lot of people have their eyes on Denver being a finalist for Amazon's new headquarters, uh, which would bring an estimated 50,000 workers to the area. Uh, Do you want HQ2 in Colorado? You know, in many ways, this kind of crystallizes the conversation because it's everything we're talking about growth in in a large project. So it's a question to me of, okay, in general, we want to attract jobs to Colorado, but you have to go beyond that and say, okay, where is it going to be? How will people get there? Where is the uh, affordable housing so it doesn't make housing even less attainable for those of us already here? So it's sort of a yes, but answer. Uh, of so course you, we yes, want to attract. Yes, you'd like Amazon. Of course, if, if we can do it in an area that we can deal with the, the roads, the housing, uh, and the growth. So it's not anywhere and anywhere that they would plop down. We want to make sure it's 50,000, you know, that really moves the bar. Where are people going to live? How are they going to, what is their commuting route to get to work? Uh, absolutely. We can accommodate that in our state. It can provide uh, revenue and jobs that can enhance all of our quality of life, but it has to be done right. Let's talk about energy and the environment. Uh, in the past, you push to increase the required distance between buildings and oil and gas development. So that space is called a setback. Uh, This year, you are opposing a ballot initiative to establish 2,500-foot setbacks statewide. Why? Well, I've always supported uh, making sure that we put health and safety first with regard to the siting of oil and gas in our state. Uh, I've supported greater setbacks subject to surface use agreements, and uh, that's one of the shortcomings of the current initiative. I've always felt that if the surface owner wants it closer, that's certainly their prerogative to do it. So what you're saying is that there's no flexibility, even if someone says, it's fine to put that close to my building. Well, this one, yeah, there's no flexibility. And we also have a goal of us achieving 100% renewable energy as a state. By 2040, this transition will create good green jobs and save Coloradans money and make us more competitive the state. Let's uh, unpack some of what you've said there. So first to the setbacks, uh, you recently attended a meeting of an industry trade group called the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, and you were booed by protesters there for opposing this setback measure. What will you say to people uh, who think, well, this is this is not a candidate then who is going to protect my school, my house? Well, of course I will. One of those things I even said in that speech uh, is that we need to measure our school setbacks. Right now, there's what I would call a loophole in that the required setback from schools are from the school building rather than from any part of the schoolyard like the field where kids are playing or have PE. So uh, I have advocated specifically changing the state law to measure any setback from any part of the school property where the kids are and that are part of the educational program. And we took that message right to the folks in oil and gas. And there's some that agree and some that disagree there. Then this idea of 100% renewables, there are those who will say that can't be baseload power yet. That is, wind and solar depend on the wind blowing and the sun shining. Uh, what are the the technological obstacles to getting there? Have you factored that into the plan? We have, Ryan. And uh, what's exciting is when the utility providers are looking at pricing for wind and solar, they're usually looking at wind plus storage and solar plus storage. Now, uh, let's look at solar because it's a very simple example. Solar panels produce energy during the day. 
and they don't at night. Um, so if you're going to want to use some of that energy at night, you're going to need something, what we call storage, which are essentially batteries. I mean, they don't have to be a physical battery. It can be water being displaced. It can be a variety of ways of doing it. Wind is more reliable in the sense that it's not on during the day off at night. Many of the sites that are used for wind uh, have favorable conditions for production upwards of 300 to 300 plus days a year. But that still means that you need to have wind across different sites and some additional storage. So that's that's priced into that model that shows that it saves money over coal, uh, is making sure we have that reliability through renewable energy. We're going to bounce back and forth between policy and personal in this conversation. And I figured I'd ask one thing about you people may not know. Well, I don't know. I think when you're when tell you're, me about you that know, shirt. How about tell me about that shirt? Well, I'm wearing a Rocky shirt, shirt today yeah. <laughs> because they're still in contention. I, I'm not. Uh, this this might air, and they might either be in the postseason or uh, they might not have made it. But no, I'm, I'm certainly a baseball fan. I haven't made it to any Rockies games this year because I've been a little bit busy with my day job representing Northern Colorado in Congress and my every other moment job running for governor. Not to mention being the father of a six year old and a four year old. But look, I I, I think uh, maybe maybe people don't know that I'm a uh, computer gamer. I play PC computer games, you know, usually in the, late in the evening and whether it's uh, League of Legends or Warcraft, you know, that's sort of not a not a hobby that's too unusual for uh, people of my age, but um, it's something that I certainly enjoy. And by the way, Jared Polis is 43. He currently represents Colorado's 2nd Congressional District. I asked what in his background prepares him for the executive role he'd have at the Colorado Capitol. Uh, I'll give you an example, both legislatively and then as an entrepreneur and, and nonprofit social innovator. First, we were able to build a significant bipartisan coalition around industrial hemp nationally. Uh, I sponsored and passed an amendment that in the last national ag bill uh, allowed for research at our universities. And in this upcoming ag bill, we were able to get language that fully legalizes industrial hemp, which is in accordance with Colorado law. It's a great crop for farmers. Uh, we brought Republicans, Democrats, the business community on board. Another example is the schools that I started, right? So not just being a school board member, uh, State Board of Education for six years, but I actually uh, founded uh, three uh, nonprofit public charter schools here in Colorado, New America School in Thornton, Aurora, and Lakewood. And I served as superintendent of that public school network. So that's an inherently executive position. It's interesting because it's an inherently political position being superintendent, but it's not partisan, right? So not partisan, but political. And that really describes school board politics, which is what I came up through. So I suppose in job interview parlance, you've given us a version of what's your strength. What is your biggest leadership weakness? Well, what I want to be able to do uh, as governor is make sure that we listen to voices that often haven't been listened to across our state. That sounds like a strength. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think so. So what about a weakness? You know, uh, maybe I maybe I discount the uh, power brokers and special interests too much. I just have a lot of skepticism about the elite and the lobbyists and the power brokers. And I try. I, that you know, sounds like a strength. Well, well, maybe to in, you in this does, political I, environment, you know, I, I don't know. But, you know, while I listen to all sides, I probably focus on hearing the voices of regular people more. And, you know, I, I do think I'll need to work within the existing power structure to make lasting and effective change. Can you give me an example of a special interest group you're too quick to dismiss? The pharmaceutical industry. You hear me talk a lot about this during my campaign. Um, Americans are getting ripped off on prescription drugs. We're paying five to eight times 
as much for the exact same prescription drug as Canada and Germany. Now, of course, there's another side to that. We value having pharmaceutical research, the profit incentive, the jobs. Um, at the same time, Americans shouldn't be ripped off. Let's talk about healthcare. given that you've brought up the cost of pharmaceuticals. We heard from Gail Knapp, whose family farms cantaloupe in Rocky Ford. She was running the family farm stand when we caught up with her. My, my husband and I pay $3,300 a month for our health insurance. We're both healthy people. You've just announced a plan for health care in your first 100 days in office, should you be elected. What in that would do the most to help Gail Knapp? So, you know, Gail is right. We need immediate action to lower the costs, expand access, improve quality. Uh, there's a number of areas in that that will save Gail and her family money on health care. One is establishing reinsurance at the state level to create larger risk pools. Another yeah, explain, is, explain sure, reinsurance. Sure. No, happy to. What that basically uh, would allow uh, is it would allow a greater risk pool for some of the most severe and high-risk patients that otherwise could drive up costs within any insurance program. So it's a way of spreading risk and therefore creating greater savings for ratepayers because those risks won't, whatever plan she's on, won't drive up the cost of that particular plan. Might that, though, increase premiums for some? Uh, it should decrease premiums. That's really the reason that we're bringing it forward. Our whole goal is to uh, save families money and small businesses money in healthcare. She's probably insured through a small business if she's running a farm. Uh, prescription drugs are another one. Um, about a quarter of healthcare costs are prescription drugs. And we want to use, whether it's the, the Medicaid dollars, be able to have an interstate consortium. We have a number of ways to get there, but we want to have better negotiation for prescription drug prices and bring those more in line with what others are paying uh, in other countries. The roadmap, this this first 100 days uh, in terms of healthcare, doesn't mention what has been a hallmark campaign proposal for you, which is a version of universal health care that you have dubbed Medicare for all. Does that remain on your agenda? And if so, what might happen in that direction in the first 100 days? I've always supported uh, Medicare for all uh, nationally. I've, I've even sponsored the bill. I think that we have a great uh, program, Medicare. Where would our country be without Medicare for our seniors? That already covers the highest risk, highest cost population. I think that we should have and we can reduce costs by having a basic level of care for everybody. It's really in stark contrast to uh, Walker Stapleton's plan to throw hundreds of thousands of Coloradans off their health care by ending the Medicaid expansion. That would also raise costs for the rest of us, because when you have a larger uninsured population, guess who's paying for them? It's you and I who are paying uh, for our insurance. So first of all, we want to protect what he, we he have. He believes that more innovation and perhaps more choice, more flexible plans uh, might paint a, a different reality. But to this idea... Well, I'm certainly for that too. But no, specifically, I was referring to his uh, commitment to end the Medicaid expansion. Uh, obviously, we uh, I, I certainly support innovative uh, bundled payments and other mechanisms to bring down rates and use our Medicaid dollars more wisely. All right, let's pause once again. Polis's Republican opponent has said, quote, it is not a question of if but when we have to get rid of the health care exchange. Walker Stapleton told us during the primary he doesn't think it's working as it should. He does not specifically call for its demise in his recent health care proposal. As for ending the Medicaid expansion, Stapleton says that's a scare tactic. But he does say while it's necessary to defend the social safety net, we must rein in costs. OK, let's roll tape again with Jared Polis and his thoughts on health care. 
Back to the idea of what Medicare for all would look like in your first 100 days. It doesn't appear in that roadmap. Our North Star is I support any reform from the right, the left, or the center on health care that saves people money, expands coverage, and maintains or improves the quality of care. So we, we put pen to paper and we put uh, a number of things that we can achieve towards all three of those goals within the first 100 days. Um, obviously, I won't give up until we've achieved a way to save people money and provide a universal basic level of care. But I don't think it's realistic to get that done in 100 days. I want to go back to the idea of the cooperation that will be necessary to implement your vision for the state and the cooperation specifically between Colorado and Washington. There are any number of issues in play between Colorado and the feds right now. Immigration, marijuana, environmental regulation, uh, even down to the nitty gritty of whether Grand Junction will become the headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management. Last year, you voted for a resolution to begin impeachment proceedings against the president. It only got 58 votes. The leaders of your own party opposed the move. As governor of Colorado, how would you build a relationship with the Trump administration that you have hinted, uh, and maybe even stronger than that, shouldn't be in office? Well, uh, no, no, no secret that I didn't uh, support that candidate. Uh, first of all, you know, I'm willing to take on the party leadership on either side. Um, with regard to, uh, you know, being able to work with people, look, I can work with anybody, even this president, on issues that improve the quality of life in Colorado. If President Trump is sincere about investing in infrastructure, uh, I look forward to working with him to make a, a real plan that works for, for Colorado. But at the same time, I think it's very important that Colorado doesn't have a Donald Trump yes man as governor. You have released seven years of your tax returns. That was in 2008 when you first ran for Congress. And you've declined to release any more since, including in this campaign. I wonder if you're driving down a road President Trump paved. I mean, the man who holds the highest office in the country didn't release his taxes prior to the 2016 election and still hasn't. Well, thank goodness I released seven years because we were able to uh, refute these ridiculous charges against me that somehow I didn't pay taxes. That's completely false. And uh, my opponent, Walker Stapleton, hasn't released a single year. So uh, we would love him to match what I've released. Um, if he's willing to go above, beyond, above and beyond that, we would too. But uh, I don't think anybody should doubt when we see how these tax returns are weaponized by special interests and the political elite in a false way, uh, it's no wonder that more people aren't as forthcoming as I've been. So I hear you saying that we'll do it if Walker Stapleton does it. But then I hear you saying... One reason I haven't released them is because they can be misused, misinterpreted, misconstrued. Well, again, I, I have released seven years worth. Uh, again, I would hope that Walker Stapleton would have released at least seven years, and uh, I would hope that both candidates would. You are personally very wealthy, and at this point you've donated uh, more than $18 million to your campaign. I want to say there's an initiative on the ballot that takes aim at this. If a candidate like yourself puts more than a million dollars in personal money into a campaign, as I believe also Walker Stapleton has done, yes. though uh, far less than you, others in the race would get a break. They'd be able to accept donations five times higher than what's allowed under current law. So it's a bit of a, a playing field evening. 
Do you support that proposal on the ballot? I'll be voting for it. On the margins, uh, I think it improves things. But I would be clear, it doesn't really change the fact that uh, it puts too much influence in the hands of the wealthy and powerful. Um, my answer would not be other wealthy people. It would be let's let uh, small donors uh, with some, you know, five to one match or, 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 or something like that. A, a kind of public financing to match those donations. That's what I've supported. Again, I, if, I, I this so, is fine. There's no harm in this initiative. No. Um, other than that, it doesn't really address the core problem in campaign finance, which is that uh, the special interests are still favored. If Colorado had that system this year, where individual donations were matched by a, a pool of public financing, would you forego your own money and, and use it? Well, there, that's a very hypothetical question. Well, it's, but it's pretty, well, it's pretty we would straightforward. Love, we would actually. love a system that, of course, enabled us to fund a winning campaign, which is the priority of any candidate who believes in things and wants to do great things for our state. Uh, and we are trying to do that, I would add, by the way. We, we limited donations to $100. I'm not accepting any PAC or special interest money. And I'm proud that we have over 4,000 donors to my campaign. I want to note that if you're elected, you'll be Colorado's first gay governor and its first Jewish governor. And I think there's been a lot of focus on the former and maybe not the latter. I wonder how Judaism shapes your worldview. Well, a happy, uh, belated Happy New Year to our Jewish listeners. Uh, Yom Kippur was a rare uh, day off the campaign trail for me, where uh, my my family and I attended uh, temple as we do. Uh, I would say, you know, we are a state of people of many faiths and also people of no faith. And I value an inclusive vision that appreciates everybody's contribution to the state. So I think that certainly my values are such that I will stand up for any group. And uh, certainly I would protect Coloradans of all faiths and of no faith uh, from any politician who tries to scapegoat them or attack them. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Jared Polis, Democratic candidate for governor. We're scheduled to air our conversation with Republican Walker Stapleton Monday. And you can learn more about both men's biographies in CPR's political podcast, Purplish. We want to note that our interview with Polis was recorded before a 1999 police report surfaced on a conservative website. Polis was accused of pushing a former female employee as she tried to steal sensitive business information. Ultimately, she was the one charged and sentenced. You can read the context around that report at CPR.org. Bill Cosby was sentenced Tuesday to between three and ten years in prison for drugging and sexually assaulting a woman in 2004. Another woman, one who lives in Colorado, played a pivotal role in the trial that led to Cosby's conviction. Heidi Thomas of Castle Rock had her own encounter with the TV star more than 30 years ago. She's one of nearly 60 accusers. Here's her reaction to seeing him led away in handcuffs. That was a bit surreal. And I wish, I wish there was a way to guarantee that everyone who had ever been through this kind of an assault could have that feeling of justice, because it is indescribable. Thomas says the idea of Cosby spending years in prison comes as a relief. The man is 81 years old, and one would think, with all of the publicity, one would think that he will not be able to perpetrate this crime again. But one never knows. There are those out there who still do not believe the man is guilty. And if he had been allowed to go free, that means that there was always the possibility it could happen again. 
the fact that he will now be in prison means at least for three to 10 years, this will not happen again. So I will feel better knowing that one serial rapist is off the streets. Thomas hopes the sentence will also send a message bigger than Bill Cosby. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't even matter how beloved you are. You're not above the law. And the fact that the man will see jail time, I can now rest assured that other people who honestly don't understand what they're doing is wrong, maybe this will give them pause. Maybe this will just make them think one moment longer. Back in April, I sat down with Heidi Thomas. Bill Cosby had just been found guilty of sexual assault. I want to give just a little background on your encounter with Cosby. In 1984, you were an aspiring actress who had the opportunity to meet with him in Reno, Nevada. You say you were taken to a private home and given some wine and later drugged and then assaulted. That was his pattern. Uh, You would later say that you were drowsy for four days afterwards. Dozens of women told similar stories accusing Cosby. Why didn't you file charges back then? Is it because he was, in show business, a Goliath? No, it was because I didn't tell anybody. (laughs) Nobody knew, including my parents, I thought. I don't remember most of the four days I was in Reno. I don't remember coming home. I don't remember the flight. I don't remember being picked up at the airport. I don't remember anything. But what I do remember was that my my mom has a broadcasting background, and she was very cautious about this whole thing. But part of Cosby's M.O. is to ingratiate himself with family members. This is, we've now learned, part of his pattern. So he had called our house, and he had spoken with both of my parents and made sure that everybody was very comfortable with this entire situation. And I knew that my mom and dad would be devastated, brokenhearted, if they understood what really happened. Now, here's the other part of that answer, really. At the time, classic victim mentality, which I have since learned, is that I wasn't sure, but what I had done something wrong. I had somehow sent the wrong message. I had Mm. somehow. So what am I going to tell my parents? Well, you know, I I think I, I think we uh, had some intimate moments and I'm not quite sure how that happened, but I mean, wow. Part of the reason you didn't tell your parents is you thought they would feel so responsible for what had happened to you. Absolutely. So if my folks don't know, there goes any idea of pressing charges. Not going to happen. Maybe folks wonder, well, if statutes of limitations had passed, how is it that you were able to testify in this more recent trial? And the answer is you were called as a prior bad act witness to testify. I think the first of five women. Correct. I was the first. How have your parents reacted? Well, it turns out my mom suspected for the last 30 years. Apparently, I called her from Reno. And I have no recollection of that phone call. In that fog, in that haze. Sometime in that haze. And she remembered it, and she made a comment to my husband, I will never forget that phone call. Hmm. And my husband pulled the car over and said, wait a minute, what phone call? And from there on, it, it, it opened up. So I went public in January of 2015, and everything kind of progressed from there. When this second case 
came together. There had been a mistrial. There had been a mistrial last year. And when the second case came together, the district attorney, as they say out there, for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, determined that he really wanted to see if he could show a pattern here. And so he was given parameters by the judge. Hmm. And I fit the parameters. He came out to Colorado with a couple of detectives, took my statement, talked to my husband, got him as a corroborating witness if we needed it. And then he determined, based on his parameters, who was going to testify. How was it to testify about those four days that were so foggy for you? Well, that obviously was a kind of a funky thing. It's it's almost a perfect crime he's committed. He's a brilliant man. He is so intelligent. And part of what all of the Cosby women have been concerned about is that this might become a template. Because if you can't remember what happened, how are you going to testify in court? So the only thing I really had to go on was I had kept pictures, airline tickets. You had kept those things. I had. because That required some foresight. No, it required a a family who does scrapbooks. I see. A family (laughs) that doesn't throw anything away. No, yeah, right. You know, Bill Cosby was one of the world's favorite performers, America's dad to millions of people. I mean, it was impossible not to see him somewhere on the sitcom, commercials, talk shows. Yeah. Uh, His stardom was part of the reason you agreed to meet with him. You were, again, an aspiring actress. What was it like for you after the encounter to have had such a very different sense of him than the rest of the world? Obviously disappointing. And I think that's a word used by many of us. And again, if we we bring this into into what's happening now, Mm -hmm. that is a very common feeling with all these public people who are now being accused of these horrible crimes, they're the two-faced side of it. And the fact that you did feel like you knew this person and you trusted this person, they came into your home on radio or TV or or by their work, and and you felt like, wow, aren't they wonderful? Aren't they successful? And then you find out there's this horrible side it's it's disappointing and disillusioning. Are you grateful that the world sees a fuller Bill Cosby now? I'm grateful that there's some reality check that's happened. I'm grateful. I'm very grateful for all of the people who have found their voice. Because the more that do, the more that empowers others to do so. You could still file a civil suit, couldn't you? In other I don't words, know. I know it's that not there something are, you've considered? No, no. To me, and, and I'm not disparaging any of the women who have cases against him, but to me that plays right into the whole, oh, they're out for money. Interesting. So no, I will never press any kind of charges. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Heidi Thomas of Castle Rock testified about her encounter with Bill Cosby during his sexual assault trial in April involving another woman. He was found guilty and was sentenced Tuesday to between three and ten years in prison. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now, the story of a man you could call the Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg of the mid-1800s. 
John Mackey struck it rich, mining gold and silver in the Sierra Nevadas. But today, many have never heard of him. The Bonanza King is a new book about Mackey's extraordinary life. Author Gregory Crouch speaks with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Greg, welcome to the show. Hello, Andrea. Thanks for having me. How would you describe John Mackey's wealth and notoriety in today's terms? Well, in today's terms, he he would be the equivalent probably of Mark Zuckerberg. He was the fifth richest American when he died in 1902, and that's the same place that Zuckerberg seems to have today. Now, he didn't have an easy childhood. He came to New York from Ireland with his family when he was nine years old, and it wasn't at all easy for Irish immigrants at the time. What was it like for him? Well, he he was a boy. He was a nine-year-old boy when he came, and they settled in the Five Points neighborhood of New York City. That's the Gangs of New York neighborhood, for Mm -hmm. those of you that's seen that movie. It was absolutely miserable, the most notorious slum in the world. Um, Horrible living conditions, people jammed into tenements, filthy, dirty, uh, disease-ridden. Working conditions were awful. It was was, uh, as bad a slum as there's ever existed in the world. And he was able to go to school for a while, but then his dad died and he had to work to support his mom and sister. That's right. His dad died when he was 11. So he left school at age 11 and uh, sold newspapers, a New York newsboy, and, you know, carried packages, swept street crossings, uh, whatever he could to support his mother and sister. But he, he was the man of the family starting at age 11. Then in the mid-1800s, Mackey decides to go west to seek his fortune. It was a bit of a slog at first. He certainly didn't make money overnight. Talk about those early years when he arrived in the west. Mackey came to California in 1851, and he mined for eight years without distinction in the Sierra foothills uh, around a town called Downeyville when it was a thriving mining camp in the middle and late 1850s. And then when the Comstock Lode was discovered on the other side of the mountains in 1859, uh, about 20 miles east of Lake Tahoe and about 20 miles south of Reno, although Reno did not exist at the time, he walked over the mountains because he was too poor to afford a mule and, you know, took a job at $4 a day in somebody else's mine. And the Comstock Lode, um, I believe, is one of the largest precious mineral deposits in human history. That's definitely true. About $300 million worth of gold and silver came out of those mines in the 1860s and 70s. Wow. That would be the equivalent of about $600 billion modern dollars, mm. uh, measuring as a equal proportion of the total economy. And talk about what mining was like at the time. Well, it was very hard work, as you might imagine. And the Comstock Lode's big change is that it's not placer gold mining. You're not washing gold flakes out of river bottoms or deposit sediments that have been deposited uh, by moving water. It was a a hard rock mine, a quartz vein, which goes deep into the earth and hard rock mining. So Americans essentially learned the art and science of deep hard rock mining on the Comstock load. And you're just digging, endless digging. Yeah, the mines, you know, they were very industrial and a huge operation. And it had a huge impact on the whole West. It was the Silicon Valley of the age. And the mines ended up 3,000 feet deep in the late 
you know, the middle 1880s uh, as the, the ore veins were petering out. And it's just astronomical, the hard work and danger that those people endured to work those mines. Talk about how Mackey hit it big. Well, Mackey, um, like I said, he started working for somebody else. He literally had no money at all when he arrived on the Comstock load. And he started working his way up, working two shifts, essentially, one for the $4 a day he needed to live and the other in exchange for feet. And that was how mines were owned, was by the foot. So he was doing sweat equity with a second shift of hard labor, uh, and they paid him in feet, which is a share of ownership in the mine. And um, those shares, those feet were tradable, just like shares in a modern stock market, and their value would rise and fall. And since Mackey spent his whole life underground, by and large, he speculated pretty wisely. And over the course of the first couple of years on the load, he worked his way up into mine ownership. Um, and he he consolidated all of his uh, various interests into one mine in 1865. And that, that paid off pretty big. And that set him on the road to stupendous wealth. Yeah, it's perhaps the ultimate American rags to riches story. And Mackey also happened to be a really good guy with an incredibly strong work ethic. Is there an anecdote that describes the kind of man he was? Yeah, the one that really stands out to me, now we're talking 1875. So Mackey has risen from nothing. That first mining success has led to other mining successes. And he now owns the two richest mines in the world. They're right in the heart of Virginia City, Nevada. They're about a thousand feet down from the streets. They're called the Con Virginia and the California Mines. Mm. And they were paying out each one about a million dollars a month in dividends. Wow. So he's just getting fire hosed with money. Now, uh, late in that year, there was a terrible fire that destroyed most of the town, including the uh, the mines, the, the, the surface works of the mines. Mackey had led the fight to stop the fire going down the mine shafts, which would have ruined them forever. But the mining, the, the big houses and the machinery on the surface is totally destroyed. And during the rebuilding effort, uh, Mackey's leading the work crews there. And some rich banker comes up from San Francisco and goes to the site where the mine works have all been destroyed and asks a miner there if he could, uh, where is Mr. Mackey? And the miner and a couple of his friends point over to a guy and it's just another miner like them, by all appearances, wearing you know, canvas trousers and a, and a felt shirt. And, and the, the banker says, no, no, I mean, Mr. Mackey of the Con Virginia mine. And the miners look at him and say, well, sir, that's him. So and it, uh, it was almost like he, perhaps his upbringing um, made him even more sympathetic to his workers' plight. Absolutely. Every person in America, and especially the miners, knew that he'd come up from the ranks of common laborers. And and Mackey's very existence was like proof positive that there was no uncrossable chasm that divided a $4 a day miner from a guy worth $20 million. What is it about gold especially versus other economic opportunities that's really captured people's imaginations for so long? Well, it's a beautiful material. There's no question about that. Um, it's the and 
I think in the context of the 19th century, it was that you could go get it, right? It was opportunity that didn't exist for common labor. Common Irish laborers in New York were ditch diggers. Uh, well, you could go out and dig a ditch and that was digging up gold. But, you know, there was a chance that you were going to strike it rich. There was no chance that there, that you would strike it rich digging a sewer in New York City. Mm. And you say one of the most exciting time and place, the most exciting time and place in history was Virginia City, Nevada during the 1860s and 1870s. Can you give a picture of what that was like? Well, it was, you know, uh, it was the second biggest city in the West, right? There was San Francisco and then number two was Virginia City. It was the biggest city between San Francisco and St. Louis in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, Everybody in the country wanted to know what was happening there. You know, uh, Mark Twain had come up on the Territorial Enterprise, the the local newspaper. Um, you know, there were gunfights and huge fortunes were won and lost in the mining uh, in the mines. Uh, just like it, it, it held the it, uh, the psyche of the nineteenth century, just like the tech world does today, Silicon Valley. It's the perfect analogy. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Greg Crouch about his book, The Bonanza King, about John Mackey and his rags-to-riches story. And John Mackey donated to many charities during his lifetime. You say he was one of the most widely admired men of the 19th century. He's not well-known today, especially when you compare him to other wealthy people of the time, names like John D. Rockefeller, John Jacob Astor. Why did Mackey's name disappear? Well, that's very ironic in the sense that Mackey was basically a good guy, and, and it's almost impossible to find bad press around Mackey in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, he was this tremendous rags-to-riches story, and he never chiseled on his employees' wages. He never drove down working conditions trying to eke out the last dollar from his holdings. Um, so late in life, he did not have this vast PR problem. And people like Leland Stanford and John D. Rockefeller and Jay Gould, uh, Andrew Carnegie, the people who, from that time who we remember today, they very much had a PR problem. They were widely reviled people and with good reason, too. They had behaved abhorrently. Uh, so late in life, they know they've got this big philanthropic or this big PR problem. So they found these eponymous philanthropic organizations, Stanford University, Carnegie Mellon, the Rockefeller Foundation. And those things would spend the next hundred years rehabilitating the family name uh, quite successfully, I might add. Um, whereas Mackey never felt that pressure. He, he was incredibly charitable, he and his wife. They gave away almost all their sums anonymously. That He despised personal attention. I, I found it interesting that when um, Mackey died, his obit was on the front page of the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle. The paper's headline was only slightly smaller, you say, than the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mackey was a huge figure in the 19th century West, um, and that made a big impression on me when I saw it, too, that that big headline, John Mackey dead, right across the top. Uh, you know, it was a uh, news on a par with, you know, like the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, uh, just He was a, a towering figure in the 19th century. And How? not just in the West, mind you, also in New York, he ended up breaking... Jay Gould's transatlantic telegraph monopoly. He did not he like monopolies. 
No, he he had broken the monopoly that the uh, Bank of California had on the Comstock load on his way up, and then late in life, his capstone accomplishment was breaking breaking Jay Gould's transatlantic telegraph monopoly. How would you compare Mackey to some of today's economic titans? Um, yeah, I think he had the the telegraph was the was the world's first, you know digital communications technology. He was a major player in the ground floor of digital communications. Uh, so he would be, uh, you know, equivalent to guys that are pushing industry or pushing into new industries today. People like, you know, Zuckerberg and Bezos and Musk, uh, these people whose happenings we follow all the time. And just to wrap up, how did the Comstock load compare to a place like Leadville? Um, it was before. And, you know, the Comstock load was the first of the big hard rock mining centers in the West. And the expertise that American miners gained fanned out from the Comstock load all over the West. I was really astonished to discover how interconnected everything and everyone was. So many people that had learned their mining expertise on the Comstock took it to Leadville in the 1880s. Greg, thanks for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaking with author Gregory Crouch. He's written The Bonanza King about mining titan John Mackey. In the 1800s, Mackey became one of the richest men in the world, but he's not well known today. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.